So the great mystery that we are one with Christ. Here then is a question. Do we really believe this? Do we really believe that we are one with Christ, that we are married to him, so to speak? I think it's an important question because our belief or lack thereof in this profound idea may be informing our life choices. And I'm not talking about necessarily understanding this concept. I'm not so sure understanding this mystery is really all that possible. But one doesn't necessarily need to understand something in order to believe it. Case in point, a God of grace. Do we really understand this? I mean, even Christians struggle to understand how how could God love us? Why would he die for us while we didn't even care about him? So I think that I'm not sure understanding is important. So becoming one with Christ, that might be beyond our grasp ever to quite wrap our head around it. But I think we can choose to believe it. And I think there's plenty of scripture that suggests that this is the relationship that we have with God. Some of the early prophets, for your husband is your maker, for the Lord has called you like a wife. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. Hosea, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice and love and in compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. John wrote, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine is now complete. This is John the Baptist talking about Christ is the bridegroom. Paul, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. The writer of Ephesians, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. And John, again, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Unfortunately for the Corinthians, they didn't have a Bible to read about all this stuff. But they did have Paul's teaching when he lived with them. And at least one other letter before they received the letter that we're studying. Remember, this is not the first letter Paul wrote to the Corinthians. And we can tell from Paul's language here at the end of chapter 6 that he had been over this mystery with them before. He said, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Do you not know that he who unites himself with the prostitute is one? Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? Now, Paul's not naive. Obviously, mysteries as profound as this one, you just don't come across them naturally. This is not the equivalent of Paul saying something like, hey, do you not know you can't breathe underwater? I mean, that's a pretty universal piece of knowledge that if you don't know before you go swimming, you're going to find out pretty quickly. But you don't just stumble across this incredible mystery. This is a pretty specific And it's a very intense mystery that's unique to the Christian faith. So Paul had obviously gone over this a number of times with the Corinthians before. So let's remember. Remember then, what are some of the things Paul's dealing with? A. Christianity is brand new. He is laying the foundations for this great religion. Now, if after 2,000 years, 
of being able to study his teachings, they still get lost in translation. How difficult was it when he was laying the foundations for them? Right? So he's dealing with that. B, this new community of Christians has, over the years since he's left, fractured along many different fault lines. And one of those has to do with Paul's own authority is being questioned by some of the Corinthian believers. And C, closely related to B, is that many of these believers in Corinth had become enamored with their own rhetoric, their own theology. And now they were teaching a theological understanding of Christianity that went directly against Paul's. Okay, this is what Paul's dealing with. So when we, when we dive into the letter that we have been in now for months, you can't, you, you've got, I've got to const, we have to constantly be reminded of this. You've got, we've got to be aware of his audience if we're going to understand some of the stuff that Paul's writing. And how then can we apply it to ourselves with that understanding? So here at the end of chapter 6, Paul is using the details. Remember, I've talked about this. Don't get caught up in the details. But in this particular instance, he's using the details of sexual ethics and eating to directly engage their theology, their understanding of the Christian faith that is leading to them to make some pretty dubious choices. Okay? And basically, First and Second Corinthians, that's what First and Second Corinthians are. Paul is saying to these group of believers, here's your theology, here's my theology. They don't match up, but I'm the apostle. So maybe we have to talk. Okay, that's what these two letters are. Okay, but before we consider this brilliant argument of Paul's that he is making to challenge the Corinthians, let's remind ourselves of some more background of these guys. I can be pretty harsh on these folks during my teachings, you know that. But I think there's plenty that can help us appreciate why they do and think some of the things they do and think. And remember, if we're really going to live into a life of loving others and offering grace and mercy, one of the most important things we can do is try to understand and appreciate why people do what they do and say what they say and think what they think. So, first of all, the men in Corinth, the men in Corinth would have had absolutely no framework, no framework with which to make sense of Paul's understanding of Christian sexual ethics. Okay, some of you will remember this quote from uh, uh, probably two months ago. Mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for daily care of the body, but wives to bear us legitimate children. This is an old Greek statesman there, Demosthenes. Okay? The pursuit of sexual pleasure outside of marriage for the male in Corinth was perfectly fine. Perfectly fine. Witherington helps us understand, according to the pagan patriarchal ideology, there was normally no shame involved in men having sexual relations outside of marriage. We've got to understand this if we're going to read Paul properly. Okay? So, for the men in Corinth, sexual experience was simply part of their life. Okay? Prostitution was a legitimate industry. Not that they thought prostitutes themselves were respectable business people. Sadly, just like today, prostitutes were marginalized, they were oppressed. Some historians think prostitutes in Corinth were not even allowed to get married. Okay? But it was a legitimate industry in that it was legal. In fact, some of the businesses were state-owned, and they had brothels from the low, low-end brothels to the highest-end brothels. They had brothels just with young boys, and they had 
temple brothels with sacred prostitutes. And going there was absolutely, perfectly part of a male Corinthian's life. It's what they did. Some historians even think that most Corinthian males probably didn't marry until late 20s or into the 30s. And so from the time, you know, they were late teens until then, it's just what happened in Corinth. See, Corinth was an honor-shame society. And so those concepts, honor and shame, drove behavior patterns. That's what drove behavior patterns. So Witherington helps us here. An honor and shame culture often does not measure right and wrong against some absolute law code given by God, as did Jews and Christians, especially when internal family matters were involved. What was right was, was ever brought honor or was not shameful. So this was not shameful. So first, Paul has to overcome all of that. Think about that. Okay, that's different. He has to overcome all of this. And so the two years or so that he lived with them and he was building the church in Corinth, one of the things he was doing was establishing a counterculture to the culture that was there. He was saying, well, that's fine, but as Christians, we don't necessarily have that kind of culture. Okay? And remember, no framework. This was all on Paul's authority that they were buying into this. Okay? But then what happened, as time went on, some of the believers in Corinth, who had heard him fully explain a sexual standard within Christianity, they found other ways to disregard his teachings on this matter. They did so with their theology, their rhetoric. And the two main arguments basically followed two lines. A, we have Christ. We, can free, we are free to do anything we want. And B, more insidious, because only the soul is eternal and the body is not, we can do whatever we want with the body because it doesn't matter. Okay, so here's what Paul, so th this chapter that we've been reading together for three weeks, this is why Paul is writing this stuff. Okay? Paul uses then this homily that we're going to do today, theology of sexual practice, joining the body, these verses at the end of chapter 6, to expose the emptiness of their theology. This is what's bothering Paul, their theology. Not necessarily their lifestyles, as by themselves. Don't get lost in the details. Okay? He begins by taking on their concept of freedom. I have the right to do anything, you said, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. Now, interestingly, a lot of Christians will read this verse and quote it as though this is Paul. But that's why I've chosen the NIV translation here. I believe they get it better to the original. They put the quotes in the right place. I have the right to do anything. That's what the Corinthian believers were saying. Paul would never say that unjustified. I mean unqualified. Never. And in fact, whenever you read Paul, whenever he's talking about Christian liberty and Christian freedom, it is never unqualified. Ever. You just have to read closely, because sometimes he'll say something, then he'll ramble, and then he'll qualify. You know, a chapter later, even though it's only one sentence, because that's Paul. You have to read him closely. Okay? It's important. So, first of all, why wouldn't Paul say I have to have the right to do anything unqualified? It's because his Jewish background wouldn't let him say that. That would be blasphemous for his background. But second... Now that he has a totally different idea of the law because of his Christianity, and we looked at this last week, so if you weren't here, you'll have to catch up with last week. Remember, Paul has made the law bigger 
He hasn't made the law smaller. The law under Christ is far more demanding. For we find out under Christ what the law is really about. Ultimately, the law was given for one reason. To expose that all of us, we're all bastards, but God loves us anyway. That's why the law was given. And at the heart of the law, the reason it exposes that is the heart of the law is to love God perfectly and love others perfectly. And none of us do that. Okay? So, with Paul, knowing that everything is about loving others, why would he ever say something like this unqualified? I can do anything I want. No, Paul would never say that. And in fact, that's his argument. See? Paul says, you say you have the right to do anything, but not everything is beneficial or helpful or profitable, etc., depending on what translation of the Bible you're using. This language here is not meant to be read singular. Meaning, this is not Paul saying to us, well, you have the right to do anything, but it might hurt you. No, that's not what Paul is saying. This is Paul talking about what is beneficial for all. For all. So here's a random sampling of scholars commenting on this verse. Gordon Fee writes, Truly Christian conduct is not predicated on whether I have the right to do something, but whether my conduct is helpful to those around me. Witherington writes, Not all forms of behavior are beneficial to the body of Christ. Paul might well have said to the Corinthians, All things are permitted so long as they build up the body of Christ. Robertson Plummer, Christian freedom must be limited by regard for others. And Walter and Orr, when one loves God, one loves what he loves. This means love for all others. For all are loved by God, and conduct will be regulated by this love. That is spectacular. That is a spectacular quote. And they're correct that love will regulate our conduct precisely because this God of love is in us, and we in him, and we are one with him. This is what chapter 6 is all about. The mystery of the gospel. For Paul, it truly always comes back to Christ crucified. He himself said it, so I'm not even sure why people have ever gone off on Paul as being something he's not. He was always clear what he was talking about at the end of the day. Christ and him crucified. So, notice the continuation of Paul's theme of grace. Last week we spent a lot of time on verse 11, but look what he says here at the end. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. We didn't do anything to earn these things. We received the gift of the Holy Ghost. We were bought at the price of his own life. Nothing we do or have ever done will ever earn us the amazing mystery that Paul wants us to live into. This oneness with God. So this is why I asked if we believe it. If we don't believe God is living in us, if we don't believe we are one with God, then it's only natural that we don't allow God to inform our lives and our life choices. Right? This was the Corinthian problem. They marginalized the Holy Ghost. See, they thought the Holy Spirit was given them just so they would get the big gifts. 
they loved their gift of tongues, they loved their gift of knowledge, their gifts of prophecy, and they also thought they got the Holy Spirit just to make them free to do whatever they wanted. And Paul says, no, actually, no, 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 no. The Holy Spirit is to help you live like Christ. Because the Holy Spirit is in you, and he wants to live like Christ, and Christ lives for others. Right? He died for others, he lives for us. Now, most of us marginalize the Holy Ghost the same way that the, I mean, like the Corinthians marginalized them, but we marginalize them in a different way. The Corinthians love the special part of the Holy Ghost with all the gifts and stuff. We tend to keep them over there in the creeds, way over there. Yeah, we believe in the Holy Spirit, but we don't want a lot to do with them because we don't quite get them. But either way, the result is the same. We live for ourselves instead of for God and others. And we rationalize it with all a bunch of good things. But basically, that's what happens. Okay? This is Paul's argument. The Corinthians were about themselves, not others. In fact, they were so into themselves and their own desires that they didn't even realize how empty their arguments were. Their so-called freedom argument hid the fact that they were really slaves to their own desires. This is why Paul says, you say I have the right to do anything. And Paul says, but you're mastered by it. Your appetites for sex and food have completely enslaved you. And we even know 2,000 years later, I mean, that those are the two easiest things to become enslaved to, is food and sex. And they were also arguing strangely that sex and eating were basically the same thing. So they were saying, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. Again, I chose this translation because... If you guys, I, I know some of you, well, some of you are playing games, but others that really have the Bible on your thing. And those of you who do have the Bible on your thing, notice that these quotations will be all over the place on that verse. Just do a random sample of verses, and you'll, you'll notice the quotations are all over the place. I believe this is what was happening. Paul, some people think the Corinthians said food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and then Paul said, but God will destroy them both. Mm, that sort of yeah, directly contradicts everything Paul is sort of about. They were saying that, and Paul said... No. First of all, your eschatology, your theology of end times, is bogus. God will raise the body too. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will also raise us. The body is important. It's important. Okay? That was one of the big arguments, remember, that he constantly had to fight with these people. But more important, you know, he's more importantly. It matters for Christ and you are one now. It matters in the future, but it matters because we're one now. And for Paul, this reality that we are one with God changed everything. Okay? So, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. I chose a New American Standard here because they have grabbed this concept, take away what Paul's really trying to get at here. Kenneth Bailey explains this brilliantly. Paul describes a wrenching process. The verb he uses is A-I-R-O, which ordinarily means take up, but here means take away, and can carry the overtones of take away by force. It was the cry of the high priest who before Pilate shouted, away with him. 
the believer's body self is joined to the body of Christ. Now that same body self cannot be joined to another body unless it is first wrenched, torn, taken away by force from Christ. The horror that Paul feels at this prospect evokes the cry, may it never be. See, see how understanding Paul helps when you read Paul? It is so easy to read chapter 6 and just pick on the details. Paul really doesn't care about the details. These details are important to those Corinthians. This is what bothers Paul. You're ripping yourself away from Christ. And for Paul, everything was about that. That oneness that we have with God. Do we believe it? Do we make choices based on it? See, the Corinthian men thought sex without relationship was perfectly acceptable. It's just like eating. Who cares? It's what we do. Paul redefines sex for them based on Genesis. Or do you not, the two shall become one flesh. That's a direct quote from Genesis. This is a monumental moment. D.S. Bailey, not Kenneth Bailey, D.S. Bailey has keen insight here. Paul's thought displays a psychological insight into human sexuality that is altogether exceptional by first century standards. The apostle denies that coitus is, as the Corinthians would have it, merely a detached and peripheral function of the genital organs. On the contrary, he insists that it is an act which, by reason of its very nature, engages and expresses the whole personality in such a way as to constitute a unique mode of self-disclosure and self-commitment. And this is why Paul is so exercised over these particular details in the lives of the Corinthians. They are rejecting the mystery that sits at the heart of the gospel. That we are one with God. It's always about the gospel with Paul. The gospel is at stake in Corinth. The gospel is at stake in our lives. The gospel has always been at stake. Why? Because it is so crazy. We will grasp it for a second. We will fall on our knees and say, thank you God for saving me a horrible sinner and then give us two days and we will change the gospel. And we'll use Paul to do it. We'll use Jesus himself to do it. It's the same gospel all the time. If we are truly one with Christ, if, how can we want to live as though we're not? Notice I said want to live, because we talked about this last week and the week before. We often do what we don't want to do. Paul himself did what he didn't want to do. But the one with Christ is going to birth a wanting, at least, I think. And this is why we need to push into grace every day and purposefully flee legalism. See, to read chapter 6 from a legalistic perspective is to focus on the details, right? Oh my gosh, they're going with prostitutes and this and that. And that inevitably sets us up for failure in a few ways. Okay? A, we will miss the greater truth it has for all of us. Because you just read it and you go, I don't go with prostitutes, I'm not reading this, who cares? B, 
if the particular details Paul is dealing with in the Corinthians' life are not important to us, then we will start policing others. Oh, well, Paul said. And C, we think the rules will keep us in line. So I'm going to address these backwards. Rules don't work. Love them. Yes, don't get me wrong. Rules will change outward behavior to a point. To a point. And then as soon as they come up against something that we profoundly disagree with, we'll find a way to break those rules. I mean, we, we have more rules in this country than any other country. I mean, we are in the midst of a raging debate on gun laws. There are 20,000 gun laws in America. Okay, let's have 20,000 more. Rules don't change behavior. Love, however, changes character. Love transforms. And then ultimately behavior changes. See, to love God, to know we are loved by Him, to believe we are one with God, will inform our behavior far more than any punitive understanding of the law ever will. Ever. When you really love someone, could you ever imagine wanting to sin against them? You might still sin against them, but can you imagine wanting to? B. The details. Even if the details in chapter 6 apply to us. So if you're sitting here and you have a problem with prostitutes, if you have a problem with eating, it's still not the story of chapter 6. The story is we have been bought, we have been washed, we have been justified, we have been sanctified by the divine lover. And now... We are one with that divine love. And that gets to the greater truth that we miss. The intimate relationship we have with God, the oneness we have with God, should be our focus. It should be our purpose. It should be what drives us to our needs grateful humility. See, in our own lives, we deny this mystery in so many ways. We deny this mystery when we don't take care of our own bodies. Whether that's with sexual deviation or a whole myriad of other ways we can abuse our bodies. We deny that mystery. We deny this mystery when we don't take care of otherwise. Fee has brilliant insight, very, very convicting insight into that. The pagan view of physical existence finds its way into Christian theology in a number of subtle ways. Remember, the, the pagan view is that the body is nothing and the soul is everything, <laughs> including the penchant on the part of some to save souls while caring little for people's material needs. 
And I would say the other extreme is just as denying the mystery when all we care about is material needs and we don't take care of the rest of the person. I used to fall into that trap all the time. I got it from my mother. Yes, I said that. I, just, I did. I just said that. Um, you know, you, you can get so into serving. Of course I love you. But there's no love coming. You know, you don't, you know, I did that a lot. You know, I thought just because I'm doing so much for people that, of course, I'm taking care of them. No, I wasn't. And we deny <coughs> this mystery when we don't take care of the body of Christ. When we don't take care of our little part of the body of Christ, we deny this mystery. And when we set up walls and exclusivity and, and against other parts of the body of Christ. Here's the good news. Today is a brand new day. Today, we are invited again to embrace the mystery of being one with Christ. Today. It doesn't matter about yesterday anymore. It's gone. We are loved perfectly by God. He lives in us. He is one with us. And the same powerful grace that saves us is the same grace that gives us the strength and courage to live like Him. As Witherington wrote, Paul was no utopian ethicist. Amen to that. Even though people think he was. Thank God he wasn't. He can only say, be what you are, because he really believes that we are changed and are capable by the power of God being what we ought to be. That's good news. That's the gospel. We are one with Christ. Let's be that.